Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are deep into the second half of season two, and we are back to math fiction as opposed to science fiction. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Although... Um, well, we're bringing we're bringing two works to you. One is I think I think this classifies as a novelette. I forgot to look up the the word counts, but it is definitely an exceedingly slender volume of only I have the edition I have is an ordinary Dover edition and it's about a two a three pages. I've got a small size Signet Classic which runs to a hundred and fifty pages, but that includes an introduction and a preface. Okay, okay. Mine has a very, very tiny introduction, like a two-page one, that's it. Yes, so it's, it's, a very, it's a quick read, but it's a deceptive read as well, because it's, it's a bit like a stable, isn't it? It is a little bit, in that very, you know, that, that very sort of grand Dense. scope of estrangement. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. We should name it Flatland. Flatland, a, by Edward A Adams. romance of many dimensions. And indeed it is. Yes, and, and mind you, romance in the old sense of what romance means, by the way, please. Yes. Yes, and romance meaning adventure as much as, as anything else. Yes. There's no, there's no love story in here, unfortunately. Pretty <laughs> much no. So, and by the way, this, this may turn out to be the oldest thing we ever talk about on this show. Yes! Because that's is... the first thing I noticed. I was like, wait a minute. Because this is, oh goodness, let me just check. This is actually 18... 84 is when it was published. That's yes. what I've got. Yep, 1884. Over. Let's see. So 129 years. Don't ask me to do mental arithmetic. What happened? Not a podcast. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm getting. That's what okay. I'm getting. Right. So I found that there were definitely some echoes of Stapledon and also some echoes of Swift. Jonathan Swift, Gulliver's yeah, Travels. Actually, the, the introduction to my to my uh, version actually specifically calls out Swift. Really? Haha, ha. I'm on the right track. So yes, because the style that you're, you're finding in, that, in this kind of work is that you don't introduce the world via characters, but you have a, a narrator or a single adventurer who provides this very solemn exposition on the nature of the world, almost as if he was standing up in front of a, um, you know, the Royal Society giving a lecture. I was thinking exactly that. It sounded like he was, <laughs> he was writing a letter to the Royal Society of, of, uh, of England. Yes, yes. So you get, you get this, this sort of very, almost academic approach in the chapters, and there are two parts. The first part really just goes into the whole... Uh, society and nature and climate and everything about Flatland, which is where the narrator lives. The narrator is a square, by the way. Literally a square with four equal sides. And this is... You can you can think of him at the same time he's he's introducing you to his world which is completely alien to you but then he's also going to go traveling in the second part but the first part is interesting because it yes it's math fi in the sense that he's a square and then he's going to describe to you a society that is based on polygons and the more sides you have the higher up in society you are the pinnacle being the the priest class which is the the, the circles and and you kind of the, there's a sense that it's possible to generations sort of go towards circularhood by increasing the number of their sides until it's not possible to see that it has sides anymore. Right. 
Um, but then there's this sort of interesting demarcation where, well, as we as we go further down, you have the, um, the kind of nobility is sort of from hexagons up. The squares and pentagons are are considered the professional class. The middle class are equilateral triangles. And, that, and here we have the little rupture. Then there's the working class, which is the isosceles triangles. And what I would call a, sort of a version of the untouchables, which is the irregulars, the ones that don't even have two sides even. Right. And then there's the women. And then the women are women. <laughs> the women are straight lines. So as I said, in a sense, it's math by because we've got all this marvelous geometry going on. But in reality... The first part, at least, is almost completely social science fight. Right, and, and very much social satire. Yes, uh, because you can tell, you can, you can see that he's doing the classic thing of um, taking what, what would benefit him, Victorian society, um, British Victorian society, and taking it and putting it into an unfamiliar framework, but with some very familiar things happening, so that the reader will suddenly go, oh, wait a minute. You know, this was so familiar to me, I never noticed it. But now that you put it in this context, it looks very strange. Right, it looks very so strange and, and kind of silly. And kind of silly. So, so to, to continue a bit, um, <clears throat> you have, for example, um, he talks about the working class, as I mentioned. And then there's this, and, this, and the square. The square always talks as if he completely buys in, especially in the first part. Not so much in the second part. But he talks as if he completely buys into his society. He completely thinks that this is the way things are, and this is the way they're meant to be, and everything um, is, is correctly done. So you have to read some of these paragraphs and understand that the square seems very earnest, but the author is definitely having a kind of a, a right chuckle underneath what the square is saying. Yeah, it feels like the author is definitely giving you a wink. Yes. Um. <laughs> So, so you have situations where the, the isosceles triangles, the working class, they, are, um, they, they have this suggestion that by striving, by, by you know, great military feats, because the working class also provide the military class, by great military feats or by, by labor or by striving to intellectual pursuits, they can hope for the next generation to have a widening of the base because, of course, the idea is that the, the wider their base becomes, the closer they become to the equilateral triangle, which is your middle class. Mm -hmm. But then what happens is that, uh, oh, and they also have the, the priests, the priestly class, encourage these arranged marriages and, and sort of selective breeding until occasionally you get this isosceles triangle union producing offspring, which can be certified as equilateral. <laughs> and what do they do? They take the child from its parents <laughs> and, and it gets adopted into the middle class by some childless equilateral triangle. And, they, and, and all ties, all previous ties are cut off. So it's, it's a complete, it's not like a sort of a gradual shift, um, you know, to a, to a higher class. It's, it's really like a, a jumping over a rift in a way oh, into yeah, a different... And I mean, the way that, I have to admit, at that point when I was reading that, that was so close to what so many, you know, like America did that with the Native Americans and Australia with the Aboriginals. And, you know, that so often actually happened that I had to go back and read the introduction, which I had skipped, <laughs> to make sure that, that it was actually satire, that he was disapproving of this stuff. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because, again, well, the square is playing it totally straight. 
He is, he is. But then as, as he begins to describe it some more, and he begins to sort of lay it on a little bit of a trowel, the author that is, not yeah. so much a squid. Then you begin to realize just how much he's sort of mocking what they're doing because he's saying, you know, basically, this is actually a rare occurrence, but it's held up and highlighted as a symbol of hope for the, for the working classes that they can, you know, sort of climb out of their squalor someday. Gives them some hope of advancement. And then he says it also it, it, it removes those who are most likely to, to, to lead rebellion. If the working right. class is to rebel, you would actually have these sort of highly intelligent, intellectual, white-based types <laughs> who would like to get ahead. Right, right. And then the messing about with children doesn't end there because some of the higher order polygons... Oh, yeah. They'll oh, yeah. take their own kids and put them in some kind of... They fracture their sides to make their sides more multiple. Exactly, to try and get them closer to circlehood. And, and, and not, and not many says, survive. Know, nine out of ten children die in the attempt. Yes. Do you, know, just, do you know what flashed across my mind when I read that? Although it's not at all parallel. The, um, the castrati. Oh, okay, yeah. And, and I say the castrati, but strictly speaking, you can even say it in other cultures. For example, in China, there was also the idea that, you know, China or is it Turkey? I'm trying to remember. I think both places I've read different accounts where you you have a family that basically neuters a son because they figure he's going to get ahead in in the administrative places and and that's where the eunuchs are. So, (laughs) you know, that's that's their way of improving his chances for a good life. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it it was, so it's it's definitely a, a, a culture that is entirely based on the idea of this societal advancement. These classes, um, class structures, very, very rigid. So and, uh, that's and I, that's fascinating. And I wanted to say, you know, we've we've called that Jonathan Swift a little bit, and of course, you know, there's there's that a slight air of Gulliver's Travels. But um, one thing, Flatland coming in 1884, I think predates this by only a few years. There's another uh, book in the same time period. I think it's 1889. Um, and it's a classic of utopian literature. It's called Looking Backward from the Year 2000 by Edward Bellamy. Really? I've not heard of that. How yeah, I've, I've actually read it, and it's not bad. I mean, it's exactly what you expect from 19th century utopian literature. It's, you know, somebody it, somebody from their era falls asleep and then, you know, for absolutely improbable hand-waving reasons, sleeps for, you know... <laughs> Exactly 111 years to wake up in the year 2000 and then gets the the tour of the utopian society. Uh-huh. Um, and and it, I, I think it does go to show a little bit how much that was in the air as an art form and a, and a form of political commentary. Yes, yes, you yes. Because again, we're, we're getting the, the tour of Flatland, you know, provided by, by a native. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Now... Um... We mentioned the isosceles triangles. We mentioned that the narrower the base, the sort of the, the more brutish, low class, whatever. But I should also say, because I mentioned their military classes, mm-hmm. that um, the small base also implies a very, uh, very sharp angle opposite. And that sharp angle opposite means that um, they can injure people because it's a great angle for penetration. So that's why they have the military classes, but that also leads you to realize that the women who are straight lines also have the power to injure people. So then there's this interesting description of the women, which in a way parallels the Victorian woman, except that these women are, well, the way, the way in which there's similarities is that they're considered to be sort of emotionally overwrought, 
prone to fits of fury, <laughs> um, not particularly intelligent, you know, kind of have to be kind of coddled and, and humored and all that sort of thing. But these are not weak, fainting women. These are women that can basically run you through and, and kill you. Right, yeah, if they get too pissed <laughs> off. <laughs> which is just us. Yes, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. So now what he describes is almost the exact same things that happen to Victorian women, but the reasons given are not because the women are weak and need to be protected, but because the women are actually strong and need, and, and need to be, um, you know, kind of constrained so they're not dangerous to people around them. <laughs> <laughs> so you have these, like, separate entrances to their houses and, and restricted quarters so that they can't whip around to the, um, you know, to sort of the, the uh, attacking end too quickly. And, um, and then, you know, even the way they, they sort of find themselves developing styles or fashions of walk, or, or should I say of approach, you know, the, the swaying one, the swaying, the tick motion. Oh, yeah, so and they, then, they keep sort of pivoting themselves on, on a rapid oscillation so that you can see them in, in case they're edge on, their point on right. to you. Exactly. And, also and they, they also have a peace cry. <laughs> peace <laughs> they, cry, yes. Yes. Because because the way the way they're described, they're straight lines, but like one one side is is the eye and one is the mouth. Right. No, so no, the one, eye and the mouth sorry. are the same. Sorry, the eye and the mouth are the same. The other side is 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 invisible, possibly invisible. So there's the danger that somebody could just run into them by accident. Right. So that's why they have to keep calling so that somebody can hear them from a distance <laughs> and realize, okay, be careful, there's a sharp object around. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so it's, it's, it's really quite fascinating um, how, as I said, he still manages to critique the whole concept. And by the time, and like I said, if you think, as you start off reading this from the square's point of view, if you think at all that the author is actually agreeing with these things, he then takes it just that little bit further to the point where you're laughing at it to make mm-hmm. you realize that he's not agreeing with it at all. And for me, it was the moment when he starts to describe uh, women's education. <laughs> where he said, well, you know, they basically determined that, you know, since, well, well first of all, you know, even, even the worst isosceles triangle has a hope for advancement, you know, through the generations. But women are always straight lines. Women are always women, you know. So, so they were kind of like, well, why, do we, why waste education on them? You know, there's, there's, really, there's really no way to, to, to hope that there's going to be any kind of uplift for them. So, so why even bother? And then he goes on to say, yes, but you know, you know, you would think this is sense, but I'm, I'm thinking that it's starting to have an effect on the children because the children are, are raised by the women, you know, up to a certain age. And then you take them away, you, you bring them to a more rational and intelligent thing. And, and this is like a fracture for them. And I've detected some who don't have the, the proper foundation. And he's going, he's going into it and just like, oh my goodness, this is hilarious. <laughs> and, it's, and it's like, and it's like, you just look at it and you can sort of see a, a collected history of, of social science and, um, you know, it's kind of theories, um, pseudo-Darwinistic theories of um, what should be happening, um, not only in terms of evolution, but even in terms of, say, the role of a woman. And, and it's, just, it's just really hilarious because he always starts off sounding kind of quasi-reasonable you think oh you know it was published in 1884 maybe he means it and then he goes off and you're just like all right no he doesn't mean it he's this is this is pure satire and and that means of course that his opinion for that time was remarkably enlightened yeah but that's one thing i i wanted to note to you is is that you know to the 
to the extent that this is obviously satire, it's obviously satire coming from what I would consider to be a very modern perspective or a very yeah. contemporary with me perspective. You know, he seems yes. to disapprove of the same things I would disapprove of. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Now, you mentioned something I, I didn't, I kind of glossed over. One very mathematical thing that he does do is he discusses how in the world do you recognize polygons when you're actually in the plane of two dimensions? Yeah, and that turns into a, a really big thing. And, and I love the way he's thought it through. You know, yes. this, is, this is a lot of world building that went on here. Um, mm-hmm. For if you exist in a plane and your eye is only in that plane, you know, how can you tell the difference between a line segment and a, and a triangle? You know, all yeah. you see is, is a line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he goes so he, all the etiquette that's developed yes. over the millennia. <laughs> yes, because basically there, there are two ways that you could go about it. You can either feel the shape, which would tell you, of course, whether or not there are points and angles to it. But feeling has become something that kind of women in lower classes do because it's sort of crude and, and, you know, unrefined. Right. So then there's this other thing called seeing where if you stand from a distance because of the slight shading of brightness, different difference in brightness. Yeah, there's a, there's a fog. There's, there's some kind of a, a rapid attenuation of their atmosphere. Yes. So you, you, get, you get a sense of where the angles are based on, on, on different degrees of brightness. And the seeing is something that, you know, I guess parents sort of send their children to the equivalent of a sort of finishing school to be able to to see very see very easily, and By it means way, that did did your version uh, did your edition of this have diagrams? Yes, it had. Well, it had some of his original diagrams. Yeah, the little hand drawn sketches. They were so helpful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they really made yeah. that whole concept make sense. I was like, oh yeah, of course, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we did, did, we tell, did we say that this man is a school teacher? We didn't, did we? We haven't yet, no. We haven't talked about him yet at all. The, the author was a school teacher. Bear that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so the diagrams do look like something that you would scribble on a blackboard, and I thought they were really cute that way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, you have, you have a situation where the, um, the seeing, being this refined skill, becomes something, as you say, that becomes a thing in society where the, the higher up you are in class, the more casually you should be able to do the seeing. And then, of course, whether or not you can identify a polygon means that you will know what class they are in, and then you'll know how to behave towards them. So it does, in fact, reflect on your own, dare we say, um, training or, or breeding or what have you, if you're able to recognize, um, you know, an octagon as quickly as possible and show them the proper deference as opposed to, you know, because lower, lower classes do not feel upper classes. So if you are going to be moving in those circles, you actually have to be able to identify fairly quickly who you're talking to and, and, and show them the right respect. And then there was the color revolution. <laughs> so I really wanted to get to this because this is actually the bit that felt most Stapledonian to me. It's one thing to have worked out, okay, he, if, if, I, if everyone lived in a plane and you had only Euclidean polygons, how would they recognize each other? How would they organize their society? Whatever. But it's a completely separate way of thinking to then actually build in a history where once upon a time you had sort of a Greco-Roman hippie color revolution. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yes. And, and this thing was radical because we talked about how um, seeing involved looking at the different shading and brightness. But then when you, when you paint your bodies in color, that makes it easier to recognize um, what's happening from a distance. Right, and it so, turned out that that basically led to a kind of flattening of the social hierarchy. And yes, and, and the art of seeing kind of began to, do, to, to, to dwindle in importance. And, you know, and then, and then somebody um, basically, how to put it? It, it was the, somebody pulled off being an imposter by using color. Right, right. So a, a sort of a, a lower level polygon managed to sort of uh, uh, somehow managed to paint themselves or get themselves painted as a higher level polygon, arranged, managed to get himself organized into some marriage and, <laughs> and, um, and, and actually managed to consummate the marriage. And then, of course, when the girl discovers she committed suicide, because that's what you do if you're Victorian, of even course, in flat of <laughs> and, um, and then everybody was horrified. I said, no, no, no. And, and this is funny because initially the women were pro-color. But then when this happened, they were completely anti-color. And, and they managed to, to suppress and ban all color thenceforth. Right. <laughs> but, but it's interesting because what that did, as you say, it flattened the social hierarchy. Uh, and the basically discerning identity and discerning class are absolutely key to society, to flatland society. So the irregular figures also mess that up because the way they see figures really works only if you are expecting a certain regularity of geometry. So when you have um, an irregular shape, as I say, somebody whose you know, front end is the beginning of an isosceles triangle and whose back end is like part of an octagon, shall we say, then they're like, well, you know, first of all, the pointy end is all dangerous and he could hurt somebody or, you know, attack somebody. And then the polygon and he could, you know, sort of go into a, a place of establishment and pass himself off by, you know, by, by dint of keeping that edge forward, <laughs> pass himself off as a, as a higher class person. And, and then what will we do? So they, they do this thing where irregular figures are, they're, they're very much the minorities of Flatland and they're treated accordingly. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, he, again he starts off quite being very brutally, really. Say again, quite brutally, really. Quite brutally, but it's so funny because again, you have a square talking away and sounding very much like he's on board of what society is doing. But you know, he's feeling a bit of, of pity for the irregulars, and then he he starts off. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I just I just love this bit, and I am going to read it. Forgive me. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Doubtless the life of an irregular is hard, but the interests of the greater number require that it shall be hard. If a man with a triangular front and a polygonal back were allowed to exist and propagate a still more irregular posterity, what would become of the arts of life? Are the houses and doors and churches and flatland to be altered in order to accommodate such monsters? Are ticket collectors to be required to measure every man's perimeter before they allow him to enter a theater or to take his place in a lecture room? And, and, and he goes on and on and talks about all the things that he could do. And then he says in the end, this is, this is the kicker. I, for my part, have never known an, alert, an irregular who was not also what nature evidently intended him to be, a hypocrite, a misanthropist, and up to the limits of his power, 
a perpetrator of all manner of mischief. <laughs> so it's, 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 a, it's a great paragraph because it basically starts off by saying, well, yeah, you know, we treat them badly, but, but you know, to treat them better, look at how much we'd have to change our society. And you know what? They're all scoundrels anyway. Right, and they're all which, bad anyway. <laughs> which to me is like your perfect paragraph of any prejudice rat against any minority you would care to think of. Pretty much. And he does it in one paragraph. Absolutely love this author. So and it, it's just, yeah, it's just pitch perfect for, for exactly that line of argument, art, you know, reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, so that, have I, have I neglected anything about the society? I think well, we've... There was one nice little bit that I, that I wanted to mention about the color. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's just, again, it's just a, a little hint of, of where he's coming from, but it, it gives you that sense of world building again, where the person who comes up with the whole painting and color idea back in this, this ancient history from the square's point of view was named Chromatistes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and like you person, said, the Greek hippie thing, right? Huh? You said, you said the Greek hippie. Um, exactly. Re- it's like Greek hippies. <laughs> and, uh, and the person who, um, the, the chief circle of those days who finally kind of put, put an end to all of it was, uh, Pen- Pantacyclus. Uh, and yeah, again, it's just it's it's pulling from our own history to give you that sense, and it, it's like <laughs> this beautiful little shorthand that tells you exactly, pretty much exactly everything you need about to know about what the context is compared to what the square's context is. Exactly, exactly, and and you just you just made me realize something that I, I should have mentioned. We talked very briefly about the circles being the priestly class, but we didn't really say what a, what it means to be a priest in Flatland. And, well, as he says here, when I call them priests, let me not be understood as meaning no more than the term denotes with you. With us, our priests are administrators of all business, art, and science, directors of trade, commerce, generalship, architecture, engineering, education, statesmanship, legislature, morality, theology. Now, what he's really saying is these people control the structure of society. And trust me, control is the word we're looking for, especially as we move into the second part. They are they they know they're at the top of this society and they know it's in their best interest to keep it that structure because that's the sort of structure that allows them to be at the top. And they enforce that very, very strongly. So the the, the second part is all about and the second part I do think is more mathematical because then we start getting more into different dimensions and what they look like and 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 really the author is just kind of playing but it's 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 just fun it's absolutely fun yeah. so so you begin to worry a little bit less about plot or characterization like that and you're just having these these little i don't want to quite call them teaching moments but almost almost like anecdotes well they're um so my my impression and this comes this okay this this next bit comes courtesy strongly of everything I wrote about Egan in the last two years. Um, <laughs> yes. What what he really gets into here is is especially once he meets the um, well no both well, both when he's talking to you know one dimensional people and when he's talking to three dimensional people he's mm-hmm. going through an exercise of, of scientific exploration through dialogue. 
Yeah, actually, yes, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and and that's a very ancient form. Um, you know, Plato's recording of so- Socratic dialogues. Actually, a lot mm-hmm. of Socratic, Socratic dialogues have to do with either math or the natural sciences, as yes. well as aesthetics and philosophy and all those other things. Galileo did it in uh, Dialogues Concerning Two New Sciences, among others. Um, mm-hmm. And Egan does it in uh, in his orthogonal universe, uh, again, among others. <laughs> and it's, it can be a very effective way of conveying a, an idea that you know your audience may not be familiar with. Yes. And, yes. and I feel like there's a, you know, there's like a very long historical continuity of that kind of approach, but it's so unusual today. That is true. Although, in a way, in a way, sometimes it's done indirectly where whenever there is a, a new world or a new concept, there is always there always seems to be one character who doesn't know what's really going on, so that you have to explain things to. Right, right. But it's not as clear cut as as this. You're quite right. It's not. There's not that that kind of um, that that particular type of approach happening. It's almost a slight offshoot of it, maybe well, a development of it. I think it's an older pedagogical technique. Honestly, yeah. um, and and what you know, science fiction has adopted as the info dump is is kind of an offshoot <laughs> of that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I know a lot of people hate it about Egan, and I'm like, no, wait, that what he's doing is is you know very grand. <laughs> it has has precedent, has history. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and yes. Abbott, you know, Abbott absolutely uh, does that here. Mm-hmm. And he does it with some variation because. What he actually gives you is, well, we have line land, we have space land, and then we'll have point land. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of them is a real visit, and the other two are dreams or visions. Yeah, that was an interesting distinction. Yes, and, and also the way it's space. So he starts off with line land, and line land basically, for him, is the, the kind of the, the step down in terms of dimensions, just like flat land is a step down for us. So he appears in Lineland, he finds somebody in Lineland, he's trying to communicate to them what his place is like, and he can do various things, kind of sort of moving in and out of Lineland, lots of nice little diagrams again to help you see what's happening. And thank goodness for them. Yes, and and of course to the person in Lineland, this all appears to be unholy magic. Or just a conjurer's trick. Conjurer's trick, or... Or, you know, maybe a hallucination. So, so you know, he, he actually starts off part two by having this square in a situation where he's trying to explain something to somebody who's um, a, a, a lower dimension, fewer di- lives in fewer dimensions than he does, and, and lets him see some of the challenges associated with that. And, and then, then he takes us to the real event, which is the visitor from Spaceland. Now, this is a real event witnessed also by the square's wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, although probably she would not be taken as a, a reliable witness in that culture. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now the roles are flipped. Now it's this, the visitor from Spaceland who happens to be a sphere, mind you. And, and remember that in terms of the square's culture, this is like huge because circles are high in his culture. Imagine what a sphere is. A sphere is a circle of circles. So he's he's absolutely, you know, but initially, he can't figure out he's a sphere. Initially, he's just some kind of weird intruder to his house who doesn't quite seem 
doesn't seem to be a line because at first his wife actually thinks it's another woman and then you know lays hands and I was like oh I'm so sorry right. you know? yeah. did, did, was I was I being rude to a circle because I didn't I did not realize you know so so the the seeing um, fools them because it's not what they expect the feeling then shows okay this is actually uh, a kind of a, a curved surface a curved surface hear me a curved edge and then the square's wife retires because the sphere does not want to impart to her these mysteries. <laughs> and, and, um, and, they, and then the sphere tries to convince the square about what Spaceland is like. Shows them a few things. The square kind of loses it. By the way, <laughs> and okay, what? so the last time I had read Flatland, I was in high school. Uh-huh. And the one thing that stuck with me, and I'm going to say, let's call it 16 or 18 years later, uh-huh. the one thing that had really <laughs> stuck with me out of this book was that image of being in a plane and watching a sphere translate through it from point yes. to full diameter to point again. Yes, yes, yes. That's true. That does stay with you. And, and like I said, the diagrams really help with this as well. Yeah. But, but it's kind of funny because when you read it, or, well, when I read it, I shouldn't say you, but when I read it, I, I kind of flip between viewing the square as a, as a square and viewing the square as a squire oh, in his studio, in his study, in an armchair with his feet up. So I have this funny flattened version of a sort of, a, you know, a Victorian you know, gentleman's study. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With this sphere going through. And it's, and it's actually one of the weirdest pictures I've ever tried to hold in my head where a book has been concerned. <laughs> because as I said, there's that, there's that definite Victorian flavor. Because when he's talking about the geometric figures that make up his world, he still calls them human. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you, so you really do get this cognitive dissonance thing going on where the one hand you're like... And let's just give a credit where credit is due, so to Stapleton. No matter how alien Stapleton's people are, he always calls them human. Ah, that's another good point. Yes, they have different definitions in, in the sense of human. They're not just talking about what your genetic heritage might be. It's, right, it's, it's, right. it's, a, different, it's a different concept there. That's a, a very, very ecumenical definition of human, and yeah. one I rather like. Yeah. Yes. So, um, eventually, the sphere... Um, carries the unbelieving square off into Spaceland, where he's able to see into his house from the outside, like actually see the whole plan of the house. He's, he's able to kind of, well you, well, you can imagine. You can imagine. If you can't imagine, the diagrams are there to help you. But, <laughs> but so, so he's, he's having his brain expanded in, in all kinds of weird ways. He's, he's seeing now that, that the sphere is indeed a sphere, so he's practically falling at his metaphorical feet onto his metaphorical knees. And metaphorical isn't the word I wanted there, but we'll go with it for now. And then they end up traveling to Flatlands, well, parliament or council or what have you, place yeah. of government. And I should have mentioned that all of this started, the visit to, from Spaceland began on the turn of the third millennium. In their, yeah, in their... Let's just say, again, and this is what triggered the thought of Edward Bellamy to me, it begins on the New Year's Eve of their year 2000. 
Yes, there you go. So, <laughs> very significant time. So, what happens is that the, the sphere takes him to the council hall or what have you, and he's able to look into it. Oops, he's invisible to them, but he's able to sort of look down on them. And he sees the, the various um, higher order polygons, and his brother, who's actually a clerk of the council, is sitting there doing the recording. His brother is also an equilateral, um, uh, no, a fully, sorry, a square, a fully equal-sided square. And so this, the sphere is like, okay, watch this, because the sphere is showing off a bit by this point, if you ask me. And he kind of jumps in, and he starts proclaiming to them about, yes, there are three dimensions or whatever, and they're like, pay no attention, pay no attention, this has happened before, it doesn't mean anything, we're going to suppress this as usual, because <laughs> it happened before the previous millennia, apparently. Yeah, and, and that's it, one thing, the sphere says, you know, I, basically I can only do this once every thousand years, and I was like, wait, why? <laughs> it's, it's for narrative urgency. <laughs> it's absolutely for narrative urgency, but that was the one thing where I was like, wait, why? <laughs> but no, I mean, it, takes, yeah. it takes that long to charge at the machine. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so, so then there's this bit where, again, the author does this little flip thing where he carries it just a little bit farther. And this time he actually carries it to the point where you're almost, you're not laughing anymore because you realize how serious he is. But what happens is that in suppressing it, they basically cheerfully go up to um, the square's brother, who's the clerk, as I said, and explains to him that, well, you know, we don't want this to get out, so I'm afraid we're going to have to imprison you. But, you know, we're quite sure that if you don't say anything about it, we won't have to kill you. And it's like, ooh, okay. That got serious fast. So, so we're, we're talking complete suppression of, of this thing that would disrupt their entire society, basically. And the square, and, and of course, the square is, is very anxious about his brother, and the square says ominously, well, don't worry, you might have a chance to console him later on. Right. <laughs> and, um, and off they go again. And, and here's where, for me, it gets absolutely fascinating. As they're talking back and forth in their Socratic dialogue, the square begins to surpass the sphere. Yeah. He begins to say, well, you know, you've shown me that how to extrapolate from my flat two dimensions to your solid three dimensions. But then can't we extrapolate from your solid three dimensions to some other kind of quality of four dimensions well, or five or thing, more? The other great thing is the way he phrases it. He doesn't say like, hey, let's you and I think about what it would be like to be in four dimensions. He says, oh, great master, you've shown me three dimensions. Now show me the rest. You must yes. know about all <laughs> I, these I, higher dimensions. Exactly. And the, and the, and the poor sphere is like, what rest? The sphere is like, what do you mean? hey, we're at the top. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's absolutely hilarious because here again the author has done something brilliant and what he's done is he's skewering um I was gonna say the myth of progress, but in a way it's the myth of progress plus the myth of superiority. The sphere clearly gets his kicks, as it were, going to the, the lower dimensions and kind of jumping up and down saying, yeah, 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 I'm better than you. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then for, for somebody from there to say basically, yeah, right, so who are the other higher guys? Who this are the guys who are higher than you? Yeah. yeah. That's not something he wants to hear. That, that doesn't stroke his ego. That doesn't do anything for him. So he gets angry. He gets really angry in the square, sorry, the square finds himself 
tumbling back to yeah, flat land. The sphere literally flings him back down, and it's this great scene. It's like it's like the fall when you question yes. the gods, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. It's metaphorically so, beautiful. Yeah. So then, but but then from there, we have a, a an interesting. Situation. Oh, oh, wait, okay, I did want to jump in before we get to that last bit, which is really important, but I did want to say one thing, and mm-hmm. this is something I've only come to understand, again, since I've been writing about Egan so much. Um, you can't, in our universe, generalize to the fourth dimension the way the square wants to. Ah. It's not just the sphere's ego, although in the, in the universe of the story, you know, in the Euclidean universe, it is just the sphere's ego. But mm-hmm. in our universe, actually, you can't generalize to that fourth dimension that way. Um, and Egan makes this really clear in the orthogonal universe, and it's only reading that that, I've, that this has become clear to me. And uh-huh. basically, uh, we live in a Lorentzian universe where time is actually, you know, is the fourth dimension and it is different. It is qualitatively different than spatial mm-hmm. dimensions. Mm-hmm. And, and what Egan does in the orthogonal universe is he gives us a universe that is he calls it Riemannian, and again, that's after the, the mathematician Riemann, um, where the fourth dimension is analogous to the three other dimensions. It's also spatial. It's also spatial in a way, and, yeah. and that universe is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. crazy. <laughs> so I just did want to throw that out there, the sphere... You know, coming assuming that Spaceland is analogous to our universe, you can't mm. just you know assume that that oh, and there must be fourth you know fourth dimension that would be analogous to these you know four is to three like three is to two. It doesn't quite work that way in right. our universe. Right, but you know what? Now that you've said that, I, I do also want to say that there are older works of science fiction or, or math fiction or whatever you want to say that we've looked at where you've been able to say, well, recent discoveries or not so recent discoveries are such that this is no longer true. But when you look at Flatland, is there anything in there that you can say is, is not so applicable? Oh, no. I mean, it's, it's, it is almost entirely just based on Euclidean geometry that's all 2,500 years old. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it, it really holds up. And it holds up and continues to be almost, not more than contemporary, almost prophetic in the way it skewers societies and how, and how societies and how individuals can be about certain things like status and, and, and like um, their concept of, of, of order. And when I say of order, the sense that societal order is in a way tied to the order of the universe, because there there is there is always that sense of parallel. Yeah, that the universe works a certain way, and society somehow mirrors it. So you have a justification for society being the way it is. Absolutely. Well, so so yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking that um, basically you've got this this thing where a lot of satire is very dates very quickly. Yes. You know, it's about something that's so specific that, you know, even 10 years later, like some some satire from the 60s, you're like, I don't even get it anymore, right? It's only yeah, been... you have to pretty much read the whole historical background before you understand what's happening. Exactly. And, and the fact that this has held up as well as it has for 129 years, um, mm-hmm. and, and Swift is holding up well as well. 
Uh, Bellamy, on the other hand, looking backwards from 2000, I think is is dating more quickly than this. Right, right. Um, when you say Swift, are you speaking specifically of Gulliver's Travels? I am speaking specifically of Gulliver's Travels, although, of course, the other one that's famous is um, A Modest Proposal. Right, yes. A Modest Proposal definitely has held it well, but ironically, I think the reason that Gulliver's Travels has held it was because we have relegated it to to children's literature status. Yeah, yeah. So we've allowed ourselves to forget a lot of the significance of some of the things he's talking about. Right, but it does still have that slightly universal feel to it. It does, it does, it does. Yeah, puncturing yes. hierarchies and pompousness and... <laughs> yeah. That, that just yeah. apparently never goes away. <laughs> yes. I just yes. love the king of Lineland. Speaking of pompousness. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, the best for me, really, is but, the Point Land yeah. sole resident. Yes, this is the last okay, bit. This so is moving, Point Land. Yeah, let's, let's go back and, to... Yeah. So the square is back in Flatland, and he's he's having a dream. Like I said, he had... Uh, the Lineland was a vision or a dream. Spaceland was real. Now he's having a dream of Point Land. And he, he encounters the sphere, and he's... The sphere is friendly again. The sphere seems to have gotten over his tiff. And the sphere takes him to see Point Land. And Pointland has one resident. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they try to communicate with this resident, but the thing is, the, all Pointland's residents knows is himself. So even when he hears another voice, it's like, oh, look, I've invented another voice in my head to talk to. Isn't that smart of me? <laughs> and, and, and that's pretty much all that happens. Now, the funny thing about this, um, and this is a slight detour, but I have to mention it, um, do you remember, oh goodness, was it Diane, was it Diane Duane wrote The Wounded Sky? Star Trek. It was a Star Trek novel from oh, way back. Uh, got me. <laughs> it's, it's a Star Trek novel that ended up being the basis for a Next Generation episode, although they did it pretty badly. The Do you remember that Next Generation episode where they went somewhere where time started acting really strangely. There was that scene where um, Picard is talking with his, his dead mother, for example. Uh-huh. Do you remember it? I, I'm vaguely getting there. This sounds like one of these things, but I have to, to go away, research, get the actual names, and let you fill them in in the podcast notes <laughs> later. But the, the point is that the, the Enterprise apparently comes to this region of space where dimensions are going all kind of freaky. And they, in, in effect, come across a kind of a, a pocket universe, which is like Pointland. It has, it has one resident, and it's, it's almost like, I think they almost describe it like a sleeping god. And then the debate is whether, especially in terms of the Prime Directive, whether to communicate with this entity, because in communicating with it, they will pretty much rupture into its universe and... And will change everything. And it was, I remember reading this book, and this book had some pretty good descriptions going on because there were some extremely freaky things happening. Mm. And I thought that the whole bit where they were just, they were talking to this equivalent of the Pointland deity was some of the most, and I don't have the book anymore. It's a problem. I don't know where it went. It did used to have it somewhere in the bookshelf. Yeah. It, prob- it probably got either damaged in, in one of my, you know, many flood situations yeah. <laughs> or, or got carted off accidentally to a second-hand bookstore. But um, 
sorry, a, a used bookstore. What's his second hand? Shoot. But I do remember that because whenever I read that, I always did think about Flatland. Oh, and I wondered if I wondered if the author was thinking about Pointland and Soul Resident and what, what could possibly happen if you did get through to them. How how would things change for them? How could they change the universe which is in effect their entire selves? Right, right. So so there you go. Um, and then after the sphere shows in Pointland and they try to communicate with its occupant. Um, he then apologizes to the square for his outburst and, and says, okay, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I've gone over it now. So yeah, let me now unfold to you the higher dimensions. And he proceeds to do so in this dream. In the dream, right. <laughs> dream. <laughs> the square is obviously a very forgiving kind of consciousness. <laughs> so, um, after that, it kind of goes downhill, unfortunately. Unfortunately, the square doesn't end well. Yes. He, he Again, after 129 years, spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he wakes up, he tries to spread the gospel of higher dimensions. First he tries with his family, his grandson starts to think to possibly get him, and then he starts like just laughing and shrugs it off. His, well, his grandson is, is a higher polygon. Yeah, because so he had sons that were that were pentagons, pentagons and grandsons that were hexagons, and one of his grandsons seemed to be quite mathematically inclined. I got the impression that the grandson had already picked up enough of the political culture to go, ha ha, granddad, yeah, that's that's really funny what you did there. <laughs> I actually, I wasn't sure, but I think you're right. That was one of the ones that he didn't necessarily beat him, you know, um, to, to the point of you're like, okay, I can really tell he's, he's making a joke here. But you did get this sense of, you know, he recognized that too many things would change if he said yes to this. Right. And right. it was better to just sort of step back into what was familiar and comforting and stable. So so then he he starts actually even like Square starts neglecting his work and so on because he's so passionate about trying to get people to see this vision of the of the multiverse, I guess we call it that he saw. And of course eventually he draws the attention of the council. And the council's like, well we can't have that, can we? And puts him in prison, and he gets occasional visits from his brother. <laughs> yeah, just just as the spare prophesied, and even his brother doesn't fully believe him, which I think is actually the twist of the knife. I know, yeah. Because he, like he describes his brother, you know, look, I was actually, you know, I wasn't in the council chamber, but I can tell you what happened and who spoke and whatever and what they said to you. And his brother, like, yeah, I don't believe it. <laughs> so, and that's how it ends. Right, and basically, He's what is it? Seven years in prison. I've, yeah, and now I've been here for seven years. Yeah, but no hope of getting out ever. <laughs> I was just like, wow, this is depressing. Okay. <laughs> By square, and <laughs> that's that. And that's that. Yeah. But what I would say about this is that you had, as I said, the first section, which was sort of social science fiction. The second section is more math fiction. But by the time you start getting into, especially the bit where the, the sphere is so angry at the talk of higher dimensions, and the council insists on clamping down on, on this on this talk of, of, third, of three dimensions. Now you're starting to talk about something more complex. You're starting to talk about my favorite bit, the history of science and technology, mm-hmm. where you talk about things like paradigm shifts and the ways in which your society and your culture actually shape what you are 
willing to see in terms of the patterns and theories, sorry, patterns, hypotheses and theories that, that make up your um, structure of, of science and mathematics. Yeah. So um, you have, it's, it's a sort of a, a sort of a, there's a feedback going on between science and math being used to justify the order of society, but then the order of society is also predisposing the scientist and mathematician to to view, to discern, and to accept certain patterns in maths and science, and to either be completely oblivious to or to ignore when it becomes evident patterns that do not fit into what they consider to be their accepted view of how the universe should work. Oh, yeah, you know, I'd never thought of that in regards to Flatland, but you're absolutely right. That's why I love it so much. It's like, it is, it is, it is a tiny and complex book. It and is. so I, well done. I, I've, it's funny because, you know, uh, I, I record what I read in, in library thing, and I don't use star ratings when I review, but I, I keep track of the star ratings just because library thing has it. Mm-hmm. And, and I was trying to figure out what rating to give this, and I was like, you know, it's rare that you find a book that does exactly what it sets out to do so yep. well. Yeah, it does. It really, really does. And, um, and yeah, I, I have to say that this is the kind of book that I say to people, I don't care if you like science fiction. I don't care if you understand math or hate it. I don't care about any of those things. You have to read this book. You actually have to read this book. If there's bits that you really don't understand in spite of the lovely little diagrams, <laughs> skip it. Because there's so much in there that can still grab you and you can appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's very it's fantastic. And, and uh, even the math, I mean, there's nothing above this, you know, nothing in this is, that's more confusing than, than low high school level geometry. Precisely. And I want to draw your attention to the title again. Flatland, mm-hmm. a romance of many dimensions. Yeah. That many dimensions bit, we're not just talking about the flat and the sphere and the whatever. <laughs> Seriously, all kinds of levels of stuff going on in here. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, so now that I've finished gushing about that book, unashamedly, I must say, I would like to no, talk wait. about... Okay. Wait, 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 okay. So, Karen, I think you and I should be barred from talking about anything other than short fiction forever. Why? Because we've been added an hour. Oh, look! No, 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 no! This is this is like the Stapledon. We can't help it. It's, it's a packed novelette. What do you mean Stapledon? This is a quarter of what Stapledon was, and but, we spent but, an hour on it. And, and was any part of that hour wasted? No, none, none. That's well, why I say we should only be allowed to discuss short fiction. <laughs> I didn't know if you were saying that in censure or what. <laughs> but hang in there because we've got a short story now. Let's see if I can do it in at least half the time. Oh dear, okay. <laughs> well, to, to, give, to give this story credit, this is The Shadow Postulates by Yoon Ha Lee. Mm-hmm. And I can thank Karen for introducing me to this author because I'm going to be following this author very closely. And I have been a big fan of, of Yoon Ha Lee's since she started appearing in Clark's World. I think I picked up on her in like 2011 or so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I read, no, there were actually two books, two short stories by her that I read recently. One was um, Ghost Weight, which had a very interesting use of origami as space weaponry. 
and also had a kind of a it was a short story but you could tell that there was a very rich backstory going on and the shadow postulates which is the one i am going to discuss is in the same universe as ghost wade and i understand that both of them are in the universe of uh, a novel that hasn't been published yet is that safe? A novel that's still being worked on? A universe that's... Yeah, either still being worked on or possibly trunked or possibly might be published someday. Yeah, definitely not not a yes. complete thing. No, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> but, but I just have to say that um, the, the universe that I've been given a glimpse of through these two short stories is a fascinating one. It is. It's, it's not at all a, a, a Western future sci-fi. I mean, there's, there's um, galactic stuff happening. Um, there's Ghost, there's Ghost definitely a... has a slightly space operatic air, although space shadow postulates does not. True. And they, and they both have a hint of some other... When I say some other mythology, it's a mythology that's still very much part. It's, it's almost like there's a magical realism, if, if you'll pardon the use of that term, a magical realism within a science fictional universe. So, for example, both of them speak no, about... No, wait, no. No, hang on. Bear with me. I'm talking about the bit where she talks about killing people by cutting their shadows from them. Uh-huh. And later in the other book talks about um, killing people slowly by shaving... Um, bits off of their reflections in the mirror. Uh-huh. Now that's magical. But it's accepted as being part of the universe. That's not magic realism. Come on. It's, it doesn't count if it's a super far future culture. I'm talking that's, that's about it. That's not magical realism. That's Clark's third law. <laughs> I, now, give me a little credit. I did say, as I said it, if I should use that phrase. <laughs> did I not? You did. You did. And I'll just say, I don't but, think you should. <laughs> but I, don't, I tend not to use it in general because I think that the term has been misused several times. Yeah. But yeah. Why, I, why I used it, as I said, quite loosely in this context is that often contemporary um, visions of, of the future, a galactic future, tend to be, well, unless we're talking about I can't even say unless you talk about Star Wars, because didn't they come up with a scientific explanation for the force in the end? Uh, don't, don't, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Not, in, <laughs> not in my personal universe. <laughs> yeah, I guess that it. went well. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe we will forget, forget Star Wars example, but it does go to show that quite a lot of, of contemporary, written contemporary visions of future galactic universes, galactic um, em empires, tend not to have a truly fantastical element, or that element is very much um, kind of hand-waved into your telepathy or special drug or some sort of dimensional quirk kind of thing. Okay, that's fair. And, and this one was really just a, yeah, we kill people by, by cutting their shadows from them. I'm like, are you going to explain this to me anymore? No. Okay. <laughs> I could I could totally I could imagine a novel in which both these stories could be set in which that would turn out to be science fictional. I don't I'm not disagreeing with you. Not disagreeing with you. But I, I am saying that um for me it created a slight moment of um well, which we just encounter so many times, a slight moment of is this fantasy or is this science fiction? Right. 
Yeah, and especially but, especially if you encountered shadow postulates on its own, you could easily treat it as fantasy. That is a very good point. And in fact, shadow postulates, when you look at it, could be literary. How dare you? I know. <laughs> I say good day. <laughs> no. Okay, let me let me let me try to justify my statement. This is gonna this is gonna be a challenge. The reason I say that it could be literary is that the the plot, the char- the character's arc, the insights are not specifically tied to any aspect of uh, something magical happening or, or something particularly science fictional. It could it could have happened anywhere. It could have happened in any place. It could have happened at any time. Now the personal re- re- uh, the personal revelations of the main character in Shadow Postulates Mm-hmm. could have also happened in an Oxbridge novel. Yes, there but, you go. But then you wouldn't get sword dancing. Yes, I beg your pardon. <laughs> we can have, we can, we can institute a sword dancing course at any university. <laughs> yes, okay, I take your point. But you say that, but at the same time, when I started reading that, I should, you should explain a little bit. The background is Kayla, who was a student of mathematics at a, a college, this particular college is absolutely marvelous because they have both, I would say, the, the mental disciplines and the physical disciplines. So at the same time that she is working on a thesis about the famous shadow postulates, specifically the third postulate, if I understand correctly, right, she's a, also... A, we, we should make sure to make explicit is a, a system of mathematical formula that, yes. that explain a lot, that if they were more elaborated, would probably explain a lot about the mechanics of this world. Yes. <laughs> but they are and not. The shadows, the shadows are, we mentioned the shadows in the, from the other short story, and I talked about the whole killing people by right, separate right. shadows. All, all of that seems to be tied up with this thing that the shadow postulates is connected to. Right. So um, this, this academy has um, sword dancing, as well as mathematics, and she's doing both. And this actually becomes quite important to, I, was, I can't even quite say to the plot, let's say to the revealing of her character. Yeah. And also as a symbol of certain things that happens. But let me dive in, because I have about 20 minutes to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so... This is a, a student. She is, they, call, they call the full um, academics magistrates. So she is a sort of a, a kind of a magistrate-to-be, and she has to do this thesis. And she's chosen these shadow postulates. And the, the author in her notes said that, in a way, the, sh- the concept of the shadow postulates is based on Fermat's last theorem and Euclid's fifth postulate, where you have some kind of slightly shadowy person in antiquity writing some particular mathematical, um, you know, insight, but not providing the full proof and then people are trying to work out exactly what they meant. Mm-hmm. So she similarly has this magistrate in antiquity who wrote these um, shadow postulates with this third postulate uh, and people have been trying to work out this this particular um, thing and there's so little known about him. The most they, there, there don't seem to be many pictures of him that she can find. Um, they know that in, in terms of his history, um, his a good friend of his was actually sentenced as a traitor, sentenced to death. 
but and he also befriended um, and and that same traitor also was um, the lover of a magistrate. She was innocent, mind you, but he was the one who was required to execute the traitor. So there was this kind of slightly soap opera, or at least, or perhaps epic, I should say, because it sounds very, you know, gone with the windish <laughs> background, <laughs> background sort of drama happening. And somehow in the midst of all this, this magistrate just sort of tacked on at the, at the end of an ordinary roster, he tapped on these postulates and they've been puzzling future magistrates ever since. Now, her society, in addition to having this, this high significance of shadows, and, oh, sorry, and I should point out, the college is haunted, but they don't quite call it a haunting. There are shadows that appear at night, and the shadows are in some way, in some way that I can't quite grasp, the ghosts of previous magistrates, dead magistrates. Right, but it's definitely a science fictional haunting, not a... Precisely. It's not quite fantasy because they are they're they're taken as a, as they're taken for granted really as just part and parcel of Yeah, being. I mean literally didn't she say when she enrolled basically they got a warning about, well, you know, don't go out in these hours because then, you know, you might cross a shadow and Yeah. And she does I, cross a shadow. She does. And and the interesting thing about the shadow, which I do want to mention, is that there's this suggestion that the shadows challenge people who who haven't faced the truth in themselves because there is a point in the story, as I said, where she encounters a shadow and she's actually scared of running into shadows again to the point where she, she wants her swords, her own blades. Um, one of the reasons she wants them is so that the shadows, she will have something with the shadows come for her. But then there's a, a eureka moment and after that moment, she's not afraid of the shadows anymore. Right. So there's there's very much this idea that the shadow is supposed to make you face truth in a way. And if you haven't faced some truth in yourself, then you have to fear the shadow because the shadow might come for you. Although I want to emphasize, I think what you said or what you said right there in terms of it's suggested is is exactly right. Um suggested. Yeah, yeah. We does not do a lot of rigorous nailing down of world building in this story. You didn't. You couldn't. A lot of it is very evocative. It's evocative, it's elusive. and the suggestions. I love the way, I, and that's true of a lot of stories in this collection. And by mm. the way, this collection, uh, the title of it is Conservation of Shadows. It's her debut collection and everyone should go out and get it. Um, Absolutely. And, and that elusiveness is, is kind of part of her style and I love it to bits. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the significance of shadows. Another thing that's very important to know about her society is that there's a concept of a symmetry of threes. Right. So, for example, when the um, students are roomed together, they're usually roomed in threes. Now, her third roommate like disappeared or dropped out or whatever. So she kind of, interestingly enough, has just the one roommate. And this roommate, they get along together quite well, but they're, they're sort of opposites in a way because she's very shy and the other one's quite outgoing. But they, um, the, the roommate helps her to learn her sword dancing and also inspires her to eventually buy her own blades. Mm-hmm. But the roommate is um, going out with some college technician who is also apparently a very good sword dancer. So they go out to these fest halls, which if you ask me, is just a 
pub, right, <laughs> but a yeah. pub space for sword dancing, and we should have that. <laughs> but I digress. So, um, so you have this image at one stage of, of Kayla, who's, as I said, painfully shy in many respects, um, going through the fest halls, um, hoping to find Terrace, you know, not really wanting to be at a fest hall, but just trying to find Terrace, her, her roommate. And, um, and then she finds her at this one and she's sort of dancing with her, with her, with her boyfriend, with her lover. And she's just sort of quite literally and figuratively on the outside looking in right yeah it's like it's it's heartbreaking in that totally relatable way you know when you're young and you have a crush with someone more confident than you and yeah yeah so there's this sort of half envy half admiration thing going on as she's looking at them but you you don't really get a sense that she begrudges terrorists that relationship either right so so Imagine, keep that image in your head because what happens is that uh, Kyla manages to find a picture of this mathematician who produced the shadow postulates. And it's a picture of him with the traitor friend and with the friend's lover. Oh, I do want to say, you said picture, but more accurately, woodcut. Woodcut, yes. Right, so not a full- illustration <laughs> after the fact, not like a photograph. Yes. And she, there's this, there's this, there's, there's a lot in this story. It's a very well-crafted story, but there's a bit in the story earlier on where she's brushed up against the shadow and her hands are shaken and she kind of laces them together in a, in a sort of way to sort of like still and comfort herself. And there are references throughout the book to her sort of jittering it when yeah. she's nervous. So she looks at this picture and she sees that the mathematician has his hands laced together. And in that one glance, in that one moment, she looks at the picture and she says that he was in love with his friend's lover. He too was on the outside of a pair looking in. And then he had this additional drama of he had to to execute the traitor. And, you know, she kind of wonders at first if it was going to be a question of he would have been happy to remove a rival or anguish because of what it would have done to his lover, as she suspected it would have been the latter. And there was something about seeing that, and she says she knows she can never prove it, and there's no other evidence to support it. But in the moment where she sees that triad, and as I said, her set is based on on threes, there are three shadow postulates, she sees this triad, which is a couple and and sort of what we would call a third wheel Mm -hmm. looking on, and she kind of idly goes through and, as they say, negates the third postulate and works through to find the contradictions in the other two, which is gibberish, which I interpreted as she tried to see if third postulate was necessary and right. suddenly realized that it wasn't. Right, and, and from my point of view, it's, it's absolutely not gibberish. Um, basically, yeah. <laughs> uh, Make me feel silly, don't you? Go on. No, go no. On, go I mean, it's it's um, it's it's all mathematics. It's you know when when you, and I've done this in in science courses more more often than I can count. You know, if you if you're not sure if you're going down the right path, um, you you follow it through until you find a contradiction, and when you find a contradiction, you know you're wrong. Right. She has this idea that that there are three postulates, but maybe the third one isn't necessary. Yes, mm-hmm. and um. And and there have been all kinds of 
analogous situations in, in our history of mathematics. And so she finally says, okay, well, what if I just took the third one out? Where's the contradiction? Mm -hmm. and, and there was none. And there was none. And she was able to work it all the way through. Um, you know, she was inspired to do that because of what she's learned in the course of the story. And then I also like the fact that it was when she was able to kind of let her mind free when she was kind of giving herself up to the sword dance. Yes. That she was yes, able to yes. let her mind go that far. Oh, shoot. I Did I say... I didn't say it. I was in the middle of saying it and somehow got distracted. The whole sword dance thing, it made me very much think about the training of samurai. Yeah. So that's why I was saying, you know, it may not have been in like an Oxbridge college, but it <laughs> right, definitely right. gave that sense that it could have been cited in this world. Sorry, go ahead. You were saying. Well, but, but you know, so, so mathematically, the only thing I was a little confused about, and I don't know, maybe someday I'll get a chance to ask you in this, um, is why they said postulates instead of axioms. Because it no. sounded more like an axiomatic system mathematically to me than, than a postulate system, but... Um, can't see my face right now, but my eyes kind of narrowing and glancing slightly to the left, which is where the microphone is. So sort of symbolically, that's where you are. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying because axioms are the things that you have to state but not prove and you build the rest of a system off of them. And... And it sounded like what they had there were three axioms, and it turned out you didn't need the third one. But what I, is I actually then? suspect that Yoon has more mathematical training than I do. <laughs> and that uh, she's probably right, and I'm not. <laughs> or, and, and this may sound like a hand wave, but it's entirely possible, the same way how a flatland priest is not an earth priest, maybe uh, this particular universe, they're... they're definition of a postulate is slightly different. That could also be. I, I'm yeah. sure she chose that word specifically. So again, maybe someday, <laughs> I, you know, it's funny, I did an interview with her for SF Signal for this very site, and uh, I should have asked her then, but. <laughs> <laughs> there will be opportunities in the future, I'm sure. But I hope so. Now, right, so, so what happens when she realizes that the third postulate isn't necessary, she comes to two other realizations. In fact, it's just like, Epiphany's hitting her across the head several yeah. separate directions. First of all, she realizes that it's not that it's not just that the third postulate isn't necessary, but that there can be any number of postulates depending on your perspective. Because she uses again the concept of the shadow as the idea. Now, first of all, what she's done is drawn break into the point of view of she's been holding on her society's view of the symmetry of three. So to realize the third postulate wasn't necessary was already. Uh, a huge culture shock in a way. Yeah, let's just say I'm betting that she she's going to get her master's degree. <laughs> yes, and and then and then for her to then say, okay, well, you know, if you're a, a, a single person, single source of light, one shadow is cast. There's that pair, but if there's no light, there's no shadow, and if there's several different sources of light, you can have several shadows depending on the positioning of where the light is. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, all kinds of things are happening there. And then finally, she acknowledges in that moment that she's in love with her roommate. Right. In spite of that, she calls it the sister taboo. Right. So you have, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And why, for me, it connects so much with Flatland is that you have the societal expectation shaping how the mathematician produces the structure. Absolutely, the yeah. Society is all about threes 
So you have that thing about threes. Interestingly enough, the society is still shaping even the, the, the shift of paradigm because she uses the concept of shadows to enable her to see where that needs to move away from the symmetry of three. Yeah, yeah. And then she also realizes that his way of dealing with his personal situation was to see this mathematical structure of three. You know, he had his two friends and he was there on the outside and they had, there, was a, there was a three of some sort and there was this connection that he was making that he was still connected to them. He was still a part of them in a way. And that was the structure that then became that mathematical shadow postulates in the third postulate, which was then baffling so many people. But although she's in exactly the same situation, she is able to view it differently for herself. And she does not impose a, a symmetry of three on it, if you see what I'm saying. Right, and she also but doesn't she, feel the need to, to reenact anything tragic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, but that, I mean, it's not his fault that he had to execute a traitor. I mean, well, make yeah, it some, but I'm, I'm just saying. But, but you're quite right, yeah. <laughs> and, and she doesn't, she doesn't make, she doesn't, yeah, you're right. She doesn't, she doesn't make a, uh, I was going to say make a fuss, that sounds wrong. But as you say, reenact anything tragic. She doesn't, um, she, she accepts the truth. She's now no longer afraid of shadows because she has accepted this truth mm-hmm. that she is in love with her roommate. But she's also um, she's not going to like go and break up her roommate's relationship or you know do anything radical, any grand epic gestures or anything. Exactly. Like uh, in a way, in a way, she's sort of found part of her joy in the revelation of the mathematics right. postulates. But it's kind of interesting because she then uses the term language because she said that um, that in a way there was this expression um, was it was it the hands half a second and, uh, there was something that that he's that she said um, yeah she knew too that she could not articulate the key insight. The silent cry that Brienne, that's a magistrate, had left within the single language abstract enough to trust with his anguish at standing outside his friend's romance. So that in a way is the the concept of mathematics is language. Mm-hmm. And she's really kind of saying, you know, he put he put his he communicated his feelings in the shadow postulates in a way. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, she said, and then Lear says, she also understood that she could never mention her insight to Terrace in a language that the other woman could fathom. And then she goes on, as you say, to say that she's not going to break them up or whatever, but she could find her own dance. Right. So... It, it was it was really it was really amazing because it's almost as if she found a point of healing and acceptance that her predecessor never could. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. and and in so doing, also found this burst of creativity that moved that mathematics to a better paradigm, a more accurate, a more useful or more accurate paradigm. Right. Right. And again. This is this is really quite intricate because we're not just talking societal, then we're talking personal. 
the the way in which we see the universe is not just the culture and how we're raised and the structures we're in, but can also be sometimes things that are happening quite deep within us. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, is actually being expressed there. And, and it's very much tied to your creativity. And creativity, people think of creativity as something that only happens in the arts, if you're doing music, if you're doing literature and so on. Creativity is very much an aspect of the... Um, theoretical research side of mathematics and physics. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you should know that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So uh, I love the story. I love the story and there was a lot of depth to it. Like I said, I, I understand that the universe is actually a universe in the novel. So there's that level of complexity but there are just so many little things that tie together from the way they both held their hands to the significance of the sword dancing. Because, I mean, yes, there was that bond of sword dancing between Taras and her lover, but there was still also a bond between Taras and Kyla for sword right. dancing as well. And that was equally valid. So you could almost see them as, um, you know, again, positioning of the light. You know, there were like, there were, there were still two shadows there for Taras. Mm-hmm. Two people, two partners that she had, even if she doesn't necessarily view it the same way that Kyla did. Mm-hmm. So there, there are just so many layers to it, and it was very, it was very poetically done, poetically in the sense that sometimes for a story to feel satisfying, you want to be more evocative than dictating to you precisely what happens. Right. And this really worked for me. Look at that. 20 minutes. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I'm quite proud of myself. <laughs> okay. Yes. So with that for the moment, we will put uh, Flatland and Shadow Postulates together in, in sort of a, a two-dimensional and, and obviously multi-dimensional bin. <laughs> And uh, we'll look ahead to the next podcast. Uh, we believe that, so now the, the volume of Cordwainer Smith has arrived. At, yes, at, at took a place. while. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so next podcast, we'll be discussing a selection of Cordwainer Smith stories, that selection still to be determined. Um, however if anybody wants to get at least a slight jump on, on, on matters, I can't imagine that we won't be discussing Scanners Live in Vain. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, next next podcast, Cordwainer Smith, definitely. And so, until then, um, I thank everyone as always for for sticking with us for for a whole uh, hour and plus. <laughs> <laughs> and remember to recommend Flatland and the short stories of Yung Ha Lee to your friends. Absolutely, and also you can find quite a few, or not quite a few, but at least uh, a couple um, Yoon Ha Lee stories, both in Clark's World and Lightspeed Magazine, which are online for free. So, no excuse. None whatsoever. <laughs> and until next next podcast, we will uh, we will see you then. And take care. <laughs>